Mark, how on earth am I supposed to transition from that? <laughs> I think we should be serious for just a moment. For the Seahawks fans out there, we do have counseling after church <laughs> to help you with this problem. <laughs> oh, boy. Kids are great, aren't they? Yeah. Sure bring a lot of energy. Sometimes more fun than the adults. In fact, most of the time more fun than the adults. <laughs> Well, we are in the middle of a series of a story that we find ourselves in, and we're asking the question, uh, where do we as a church, in fact, let me start with a caveat, I'm fighting a chest cold, I had a little bit last week, I have a lot more this week, so I apologize for coughing, I'll just tell you that right up front, because it's going to happen, and, um, but we're in the middle of this story, the story that we find ourselves in, and the bigger question that we're asking is, where do we fit as a church in this story? It's very easy for churches just to be, kind of become their own little enclave and, and lose track of where we fit in. And the elders and the staff have been in this discussion all last fall, so we wanted to invite you into the discussion with us so you know many of the things that we've been talking about uh, in our meetings. I'm convinced that the people in the first century, when we look back, Jesus has already come. But for the first century Jewish Christians, this was something they grew up with, waiting for the Messiah. And when Jesus finally came, they had a little bit of a hopeful glimpse. Was this really him? And then he surprised them and did many things that they did not expect the Messiah to do, such as die on the cross. We'll actually come back to that in a couple of weeks when we talk about the gospel. But he did many things that were very surprising and unexpected. And uh, it took them a while to to get a good glimpse, a healthy perspective of who Jesus was. But once they got it, they realized that their lifelong dreams had been fulfilled. God had come back. He had not forgotten us. And when that happened, they were so excited, they were unstoppable. They went and told everybody, we have seen the risen Messiah. Nobody rises from the dead. We have seen him. We've touched him, John says. We have beheld him with our eyes. We ate with him. We spoke with him. We've seen him after the resurrection. I don't care what you say. He's real. That's their message. We know the risen Savior. And if you don't believe it, that's your problem. But we've seen him. Everywhere they went, they told everybody that story. Everybody. All through the Acts, everywhere they're going, they're saying, we've seen the risen Savior. We know what he's like. But the, they realized that he was the fulfillment for them of their lifelong dream. The Messiah has come. God has not forgotten us. And so I'm convinced if we as a church can place our story within the bigger story of what God is doing, then we'll have that same sense of we know what we're about. We know what we're doing. Today we're talking about being representatives of God to the world. And we're going to start in Exodus chapter 19. So if you want to follow along, there's a Bible in the, in the chair in front of you, or many of you have smartphones and tablets, get them out. Uh, Exodus chapter 19. Let me tell you a little bit of the backstory to this. The uh, Israelites are now out of Egypt. Uh, they've gone through the Red Sea. They've been out for about three months, Exodus 19 tells us. And, um, and they haven't yet met God kind of strange. They serve this God, they've seen his power, but they've never really actually met him face to face. It's an amazing story, Exodus 19 and 20, because they, um, they, they saw the 10 plagues. We talked about that some last week. 
And now they're at the base of Mount Sinai, and God wants to introduce himself to them. It's been over 400 years since uh, Joseph and the clan came down from the lands of Palestine, what we now refer to as Palestine, the promised land. And they've been in the nation, but they haven't heard from God during this time. And so they, um, they saw God do all these plagues, but they've never really talked to who is this God that just let us out. So this is the story, Exodus 19 and 20, of God meeting Israel for the first time. It's a fabulous story. It's a very pivotal story. It's a significant story in biblical theology because so much gets laid out right here in a few short verses of what God is doing. So the story, as it unfolds, you can read it. It's actually a, a quite funny story, I think. He, uh, he's on Mount Sinai, and all the people are presented as standing right at the base of the mountain. But he says, whatever you do, don't touch the mountain. For this part of our conversation, the mountain is my home, and my home is a holy place. And he's trying to help them understand that as God, I'm holy and you're not. We have some work to do. So you can't touch, neither you nor your animals can touch the mountain. So they come right up to the edge of the mountain with anticipation of meeting God. And on the third day, God surprises them. The mountain begins to shake. Tremendous earthquake. There's this smoke that covers them. Trumpet begins to blare, lightning, thunder, noise. They can't stand it. And then in chapter 20, the next time we see the people, they're standing at a great distance. You know what happened? They ran away. They're terrified. When they finally meet God, I mean, how many of you think that when we meet our personal God, he's going to terrify us, right? But that's what happened. They're standing on the other side of the valley. So Moses goes trucking after them, and in verse 20... He says something very, very important. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Aren't those good words? God just terrified them, and he says, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Verse 21, but the people remained at a distance. <laughs> Still a little unsure. This is the very first time we see this concept of the fear of the Lord. And at the heart of the fear of the Lord is not being afraid of God. It's having this incredible sense of who he is and how powerful he is. God did this on purpose to put that fear in them so that they wouldn't worry. From here on out, they could say with confidence, our God is more powerful than all the other gods. My dad's bigger than your dad. Basically, is the message. Our God is all-powerful. We saw him shake the mountain. This comes back in Hebrews 12 and 13. This imagery comes back that we serve a God who can shake the mountain. That's how big he is. So you understand this concept of the fear of the Lord? Moses is saying that doesn't mean be afraid of God. That means have a really healthy respect for how powerful he is. Because with God, you are unstoppable. No army can rout you. No empire can overtake you. So that's kind of the background to what's going on in the present circumstance. And in the middle of this, he says something very interesting, starting in verse 3. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, 
then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured or prized possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Very first thing we notice, then Moses went up to God and the Lord, you notice in your Bibles, it's all caps. This is the divine name. This is the one true God, the personal living God now speaking. He's now talking to his people and he says some very critical things that we need to look at. The first thing he does is he reminds them of what he has already done. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did, past tense, and how I carried you, past tense, <coughs> and how I brought you, past tense, to myself. He's already delivered them. This introduces a concept in theology that's very, very important. Grace always precedes obedience. We have 18 chapters of God's deliverance and salvation before a single chapter of law. Right? You get the point? Okay, now think about this as we've talked over the, over the months. What have we said? We are blessed. Why? So that we can be a blessing to others. We are forgiven. Why? So we can forgive others. We are loved. Why? So we can love others. Last week we talked about we are redeemed. So we can live redemptively in the lives of others. You see it? Obedience always follows grace. God acts first and then he asks us to respond. That's the answer. That's a pattern. We see it right here and it just permeates the scriptures through and through. Obedience is important. This text is a very important text because it represents what God is going to do to fulfill his promise to Abraham throughout the entire world. It's captured right here in these three verses that we just read. So, let's get into it. What are we here for? Well, first of all, Israel is to be a special people, but they're not to be the only people. We're going to look at what he says to Israel, and then we're going to find the corresponding uh, section in the New Testament that relates it to us. So eventually, we're going to get to who we are as a church. Israel is to be a special people, but they're not the only people. He does tell them in verse uh, 4, uh, verse 5, that out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. I can't say how wonderful these words are. No God in the ancient world, no religion said that. The gods were not personal. And to have a living God come along and say, you will be my prized, my treasured possession. Aren't those words of grace, of blessing? Aren't those words, think about if your parents said that to you, um, I love you. You are a special blessing to me. If you haven't said that to your children, you might think about that. What a, what a great gift to pass on. And this is what God says. But then he goes on and he says, although the whole earth is mine, he captures the whole earth, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. So while Israel was unique, uh, it was not an exclusive club. It wasn't. God rescued one nation in order to reach all the nations. Genesis 10 and 11. <coughs> you have the Tower of Babel and God uh, creating all the nations. Genesis 12, the very next chapter, he chooses one to reach all the rest. So here's God, and he creates a kaleidoscope of nations, different ethnic groups, different colors that surround him so that we can all see him from, from, through, our, through the lens of our culture. And then he chooses one 
to reach the rest. So this is not an exclusive club. This speaks about the universality of God's mission. And I'm not talking about universality of salvation. I'm talking about God cares about the entire creation, every person there. So God's business with Israel is really his unfinished business with the rest of the world. That's what that means. His business with Israel, by focusing on them for a period of time, represents his love for us in his unfinished business, to reach us. And by the way, we're all sitting here today, most of us are not Jewish, we represent the fact that God has, has been faithful to his promise. He didn't forget us. Just what he said to you, do with Abraham, he has done it. We have come to know the one true God. Well, in the middle of that, he says two things about Israel. One is that they will become a kingdom of priests. See it? Verse 6, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. <coughs> priests stood in the middle between God and the rest of the people. So you have God and you have the people and you have a mediator who is a priest. The priests had two significant tasks that they did daily when they were serving. One was they taught God's ways to the people. That's what they did. This is the God who has introduced himself and this nation doesn't know him. So these priests begin to teach God's way to the people. Well, not only that, but they bring the people's sacrifices in to God and offer them to God. So you see the two-way street? So they take God's teachings and they pass it out and they take the people's sacrifices and offer it back up to God. Their primary responsibility was to bring people to God and to bring, the pe and to bring God to the people. They introduced God to the people. That's what they did. Additionally, they were responsible to bless the people in the name of this one true God. You might turn over to Numbers, Numbers chapter 6. It's a very famous verse. Many of you have heard it, I'm sure, many times. Numbers chapter 6, verse 22. The Lord, and that's all caps again, so this is, this is dealing with the personal nature, the personal name of the one true God. This one true God said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord, this one true God bless you and keep you. Aren't those good words? In a world where God's didn't bless the people, the one true God bless you and keep you. Let him make his face to shine on you, be gracious to you. Let the Lord, this one true God, turn his face toward you, not away from you, and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. We're talking about ownership. But what's unique about Exodus 19 is that he says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. Every one of you will become a priest. He's, he's casting a vision. He's giving us a glimpse into the future of what's coming. Who was, who was the nation of Israel to be priests on behalf of? The rest of the world, all the nations, it's just buried right there. You as a kingdom will become, you as a nation will become a kingdom of priests. This is where you're headed. You're going to bless the entire world. Being a priest involves fulfilling the mission of God. It involves mediating between God and people. It involves spread, bringing the truth out to people about who this one true God is and bringing them to God and their sacrifices 
in connecting them. That's the very nature of a priest. Look with me in Romans. I want you to see that both Paul and Peter understood their ministry this way. Romans chapter 15. Right near the end of the book. Romans chapter 15, verse 15. Paul says, Yet I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister to Christ, of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. So that's his calling, to be a minister to the Gentiles. By the way, that's you and me. Let's not forget that. We are blessed because Paul received this calling. But then he goes on. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming this wonderful good news of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified or consecrated by the Holy Spirit. He saw it as his priestly duty to bring this wonderful good news to the Gentiles. So Paul is living out Exodus 19. He's a Jew. Not a joke. It's not admitted as a joke. How many Jews does it take to fulfill the promises of God? Only one. Jesus did it. But Paul goes on to argue, and in case you still doubt, I did it too. This is my priestly duty. I'm fulfilling the promise, the covenant with God. Look with me in 1 Peter. Keep going to the right a little ways. 1 Peter. It's after Hebrews. Chapter 2. This is Peter's rendition of this, verse 4. As you come to him, that's Christ, the living stone, rejected by human beings but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. See it? To be a holy priesthood. Both Peter and Paul see our lives and ministry in Christ as a priestly responsibility. What does that mean? <coughs> Exodus 19. We are to be priests to those around us. Right here. Aren't these wonderful words? God has given us a mission. We represent Him. Well, the second thing He says in Exodus 19 is that Israel is to become a holy nation. The concept of holiness means that we are to be different. You've heard me say that when God, when He gave them the law, the law, one command at a time, began to make them look different than the Egyptians and the Canaanites. So every one of these Mosaic laws makes them different than the nations in which they live. That's the reason why he gave them the law. He wants to make them into a holy nation so that they look different. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Holiness is both a gift from the Lord and it's a command on how to live. Be holy because I am holy. It doesn't say become holy. It says live it out. That's the concept of what holiness is. Israel was commanded here. He was told, you're going to be a holy nation. He wants, to live out, he wants them to live out their faith in Him daily so that the world can see. Does our conduct matter? Yes. Does our behavior matter? Absolutely. Do the way we treat one another as a church, does it make a difference? Absolutely it does. That's the primary tool that the Holy Spirit uses to convince the world that God is love. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, Jesus said, if you have love for one another. How we live our lives together matters. So let's continue to make the commitment where the Bible speaks, where this book says something, let's live by it. 
So if it says in 1 Thessalonians, um, in everything give thanks for this is God's will for you, then let's practice that. Let's practice it. When, Philippians, when Paul says in Philippians, do nothing with grumbling or complaining, let's practice that. It's just two examples. It matters. It really does make a difference in the world around us. And I want us to be a church that lives this out every day as much as we are able by God's grace. The message to Israel was clear. Be what you are now that you know him. Or be different. That's what it means. Be different. Look different than the world around you. Trust me, the world, will, they will notice. They will notice because we have genuineness and authenticity. This is captured wonderfully in Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18, if you want to turn over there. Leviticus 18, it's two verses, verses 3 and 4. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live. <laughs> I love those words. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live, and you must not do what they do in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. Why? Because I am, there's that all capital Lord, I am the one true God. Keep my decrees and laws for whoever obeys them will live by them because I am the one true God. That's the fundamental definition of holiness. These commands that he gives them in the Mosaic law, it was designed to make them look different than the nations around them. Don't live like the people where you came. Don't live like the people where you're going. Live the way I ask you to live, and then you will become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Holiness is a calling. It's a calling by God. When you put these two ideas together, we, as a church, are to be different than the surrounding culture, and that's first and foremost characterized by the way we relate to one another and live our lives together. We're to be different from one another, and we're to live out our faith. We're to act as priests. We're to introduce God. We are to be representatives of God to the world. That's what that means. That's our primary job. We bring people to God. We bring God's ways to people. We introduce God to people. We bless those around us. We act in a priestly way for people. That's what it means. Now look at where we've come in this series. We talked about being a blessing to others. We talked about walking in the way of the Lord, living redemptively in our culture, living holy lives. We've been using this language, haven't we? This is what should, at the very core, characterize us as a church. So the question then, what does it mean to live like this? It means that we have to live in such a way that generates curiosity. It means attracting people to God, not ourselves. And the best way to do that is what Paul says, put one another as more important than yourselves. That's what that means. That we actually live out what he asks us to live out. So what does it look like? I'm going to read you some passages. You can write them down and look them up later. Deuteronomy chapter 4. I'm going to read them quickly. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me. See, I have taught you this law so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations. 
they will hear about these decrees and they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near to us whenever we pray to him? We're to create curiosity. When we live our lives, it makes people curious because they've never seen it. And over in 1 Kings, um, 1 Kings, we have where they're dedicating the temple. This is Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 8. In the middle of Solomon's prayer, he says these incredible words. As for the foreigners who do not belong, remember he's praying to God and lead, he's leading the people in praise to God, in a prayer to God. So this is what he's saying to God. As for the foreigners who do not belong to your people Israel, but have come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. They will hear of it. Who, by the way, makes that happen? It's God's business, not ours. We live our lives and they will hear. When they come and pray to this temple, toward this temple, then hear them. Hear from heaven, your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigners ask of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel. And that they may know that this house that I have built bears your name. Aren't those wonderful words? When we live the way God asks us to live, they will notice. So it means that we attract seekers. Over in Jeremiah, going to go a little further. Jeremiah chapter 33. This is the end. Uh, Jeremiah 31 is the new covenant is coming. God's promising that he's, he's going to reward them. He's going to answer their prayers. And listen to what he says. Jeremiah 33. I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me and will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. Then this city, the city of Zion, which is a symbolic for the one true God, will bring me renown. This city will bring me renown. In the New Testament, we are called the city of God. We will bring him renown. We will bring him joy, praise, and honor before all nations on the earth that hear of all the good things I do for it. God is going to bless Zion or Jerusalem so that all the nations will see. And later on, this becomes a picture of us. So we generate admiration for the Lord. So we create curiosity, we attract seekers, we generate admiration for the Lord, and we invite the world to worship God. The opening words of Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. What did Jesus say? You are the light of the world. Right? It begins with us. That's what it means to represent God. We live our lives. We live our lives the way he asks us to. Does our character matter? Absolutely. Does our conduct matter? Absolutely it does. And the primary reason it matters is, number one, is this what God created us for. He created us to be loving, to be forgiving, to be generous, to care for people. He created us for that. But the other reason is that's his primary way of attracting the world to him. When we live that way, then as Solomon said, it will come to pass 
when they hear of your name, your great name, and they will hear, I love those words, then listen to them, bring them. This can only happen because we are growing in our relationship with the Lord. Remember our mission statement etched in the glass up there? This can only happen because of what that says. Going passionately out of our growing intimacy with God. And what have we been doing? We've been talking back and forth about what it means to be a blessing to the nations while at the same time, what does it mean to live in fellowship with one another? As we live our lives, as we live our lives the way God has asked us to live, then they will hear. That's his responsibility. That's why Peter says, always be prepared to give a defense. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. We're going to take an offering in just a minute. Peter says, always give, be prepared to give a defense for when they ask you questions. What's the assumption? <coughs> the assumption is that God has done his work. We've lived our lives faithfully, and they come and they ask questions, and they want to know. Because when they look at Dillon Community Church, if we're living our lives the way, they ask, the way God asks us to, you know what they find? They find authenticity. They find genuineness. They find concern. They find care. They find people that say, I am going to be a grateful person, and we're going to be a grateful church. They find people that say, no, we're not going to grumble and complain. No, we're going to be generous. We're going to love people. We're going to help them. And as Solomon says, and they will hear. That's God's job. Thank you for, we're going to take an offering. Thank you for whatever God has put on your heart to give. You're very generous and we love you deeply. Thanks for taking care of us. So let me pray. Father, I do pray for this offering. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would bless the people as uh, you told Aaron to, Lord. Shine your face upon them. Give them great blessing. Turn toward them, not away. Bless them, Lord, because of their sacrifice for you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.